the grid, a digital frontier. I pictured patriots as they moved throughout our country. Do they look like individuals or small business? Were the rallies like church? I keep dreaming of a world I hope to one day see. And then, today, I got in. Hello, fellow Americans. This is Chris Coleman, your host with the Kingdom Patriot Group. Welcome to The Grid, where faith, politics, and commerce intersect. Whack-a-mole and the U.S. government. Exactly what do they have in common? That's today's topic on The Grid, but first a word from our sponsor. Mercantile Mountain is an online e-commerce business that sells a wide variety of shirts, backpacks, hats, jackets, footwear, camping, sports, health, and home decor products. With unique branding, Mercantile Mountain desires to help you renew and refocus your life to your God-given purpose. I know the owner, Clay Carroll, personally, and I am proud to call him a patriot and a friend. He has a heart for American small business and seeks to source his products with like-minded craftsmen, artisans, and businesses to bring quality products to his customers. Clay is a devoted husband and father and has the spirit of a kingdom patriot. Clay loves God and country, thus the birth of Mercantile Mountain. Go to their website today to order your favorite products. That's mercantilemountain.com. Again, type in mercantilemountain.com to order today. Be sure to tell them you are a kingdom patriot. Okay, now to our topic. What does whack-a-mole have to do with the U.S. government? Well, let's see if there's a comparison. In 1971, the game Whack-A-Mole was invented. How many of you have played that game where you hit the one mole that pops up only for another one and you frantically are hitting one after another and you have no idea where the next one is going to occur? That seems like an odd comparison. But let's view it like this. Let's call that mole a problem. And so as that mole pops up, we want to get rid of that problem. In fact, we want to smash it. And we do. And there's part of us thinks that now that I've done that, the problem is over. But in reality, it pops up on another row, another column, and then you smash at that one. And as soon as you knock it down, another one comes up. And when you hit one more, two come up at the same time. Every time you think that you've gotten rid of the mole, he just pops his head somewhere else. Or I think of the toy, I used to call it Silly Willy, but I think some call it like a jellyfish water snake or something like that. But it's a tube that's filled with gel that you squeeze. And when you squeeze it, it pops up both ends. So then if you move your hand and you squeeze one end... Now it pops out on the other. The idea being is that you can never actually truly squish it. All you do is displace the gel. And in this case, as I relate to the federal government, all you do is displace the problem. So I share these two examples because what we're really going to dive in today is how the federal government is exactly like that. And the example that I'm going to use to start with is actually going to be in regards to the federal gas tax. And I guess I should pause there for a second and make sure you understand that there is a gas tax on every gallon of gas that you purchase. There's a federal gas tax, but there's also a state gas tax. So for example, if you are unfortunate enough to live in the state of Illinois, you're paying 59.56 cents per gallon of gas for state tax. You're also paying 18.4 cents in federal tax. So you are paying basically 78 cents per gallon and just tax. So every time you go to the pump and you're paying $3 a gallon, remember, it actually could be $2.20 if you weren't paying all of those taxes. So to understand the history of the gas tax, you have to go all the way back to 1932. On June 6, the Revenue Act was passed. It's called the Revenue Act of 1932. And in this was this gas tax. And it's basically an excise tax. It's added to the cost of every gallon of gasoline. And it's gone through several iterations over the years. 
but it is not a progressive tax. It's not indexed for the cost of inflation. It's just a flat amount. And the last update was in 1993 when it was bumped to 18.4 cents a gallon. I do want to make a distinction between unleaded gasoline and diesel. Most Americans drive vehicles that run on unleaded gasoline, and that tax is 18.4 cents per gallon. But if you have a vehicle that runs on diesel, the tax is actually 24.4 cents. So almost 24.5 cents per gallon. Some localities even add tax on top of that. So I'm sure you're asking yourself now, what in the world does a fuel tax by the federal government and our states have to do with whack-a-mole? That's important context to understand before we get into the meat of some of the conversation regarding what I call the whack-a-mole effect. So let's take a moment to talk about the miles per gallon per vehicles. Back in the 70s, a measure was passed that said passenger vehicles in the U.S. needed to have an efficiency standard, or I guess another way to put it, to form at 27.5 miles per gallon within 10 years' time. In the 1980s, During the great boom during the Reagan years, that standard was actually lowered to 26 miles per gallon. But then through the 1990s and into the 2000s, it's been raised again to over 40%. And when I say raised, I think the standard now is in the next 10 years or by 2025, something like that, we have to be upwards of the mid-30s to 40 miles per gallon. Yet, and this is a little bit old data, but I want to go back to 2002. The National Academy of Sciences said that cars could meet 37 miles per gallon without sacrificing safety and performance. So they they made that claim, and that at that standard, it would save 2.7 million barrels of gasoline per day. So I know on a podcast, it's hard to do the math and jumble a bunch of numbers, but just go with me for a minute. If we truly could save 2.5 million barrels of gasoline a day, and I don't know if that means a full barrel of just gasoline or if it's really talking a barrel of oil. But let's let's use the conservative number. Let's say a barrel of oil. A barrel of oil produces approximately 20 gallons of gasoline. So let's use that number. That means, according to this, if true, that 2.7 million barrels of gasoline at 20 gallons per barrel, it means that we're saving 54 million gallons of gasoline per day or 19.7 billion That is a B, billion gallons of gasoline per year. Now, why is that important? And why even do we put this measure in place? Well, from an environmentalist perspective, your first thought is, well, look how we're saving the environment. We're helping the environment. We're we're doing this in order to have cleaner energy. And I'm not arguing that at all. I'm asking, is it the government's role to force this type of technology or the capitalistic market produce it as customers demand more and more efficient vehicles. But nonetheless, the government went this direction and said, we want to impose these standards and we're going to save all this fuel. Now, I want to pivot for a second and talk about the actual miles driven in America. And when I say that, if you go back 40 years, Americans drove approximately 1.5 trillion miles per year. Today, however, Americans drive 3.2 trillion miles. And there's a lot of reasons for that. The American population has grown quite a bit in the last 40 years. There's a lot more vehicles on the road. People are much more transient in their jobs. While we did see, I think it's approximately 60% decrease in miles driven during the height of the COVID pandemic, by and large, there are more people, more cars, and more distance for people to drive. And that makes a lot of sense of why the amount of miles driven in our country has more than doubled. 
by now you may see where I'm going with this. So where do those tax dollars actually go? So I'm kind of jumping back and forth. But the tax dollars go from the, the federal tax on the gasoline go into the highway trust fund. And these funds are supposed to be used for, I would say, infrastructure projects is how I would describe them for roads, bridges, public transportation systems and the like. But now I want you to think about this. The government said we need create more energy efficient vehicles so that we can reduce, at least per capita, the amount of fossil fuels being consumed and to have a healthier and cleaner environment. But yet the taxes that we get from said vehicles that buy gasoline that drive down the road, we use to fund the highway trust fund. So this is ultimately where I'm going with this. And this is the unintended consequence is that by increasing the efficiency of the vehicles, you actually increase the range of a vehicle per gallon of gas. So in layman's terms, every gallon of gas you have in a vehicle that is more efficient means it can drive farther. And for every gallon of gas that you don't buy because your vehicle can go farther on that gallon of gas means a reduction in tax revenue that is given to the federal government into the highway trust fund to keep those roads and bridges in working order for those traveling. But at the same time we've done that, Americans are driving more than double the number of miles than they were 40 years ago. So in simple terms, tax revenue per vehicle is going down. The number of miles driven has doubled. And the efficiency of each vehicle means each mile driven requires less gas than previous. You have a perfect storm. Well, you're trying to solve the dependence on fossil fuels, but more importantly, to find a funding mechanism for the highway infrastructure of our country. In essence, you've shot yourself in the foot by pushing the efficiency standards on vehicles and thus losing the funding necessary to keep up the roads that are supporting a greater amount of pressure, a greater amount of miles driven than ever before. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not advocating more taxes. Far from it. What I'm trying to show is that often regulations are made in a vacuum without considering the downstream consequences. And I think that's a perfect example of what we have right here. And I'm sure there's plenty of other topics like the California smelt, abortion. We can look at the downstream consequences. Abortion is a big one for me because when we think about the fact that in 1975, there were 3.7 Americans working for every retiree who was receiving Social Security benefits And by 2010, that was down to 2.9. I think of what would happen if there were 51 million additional babies who were in our economy. We can talk about women's choice. We can talk about the biblical implications. We can talk about all of those things. But just from a pure economic argument, if there were 50 million additional Americans working, paying taxes, would our country be in the same fiscal mess that it's in? But that's what's happened when you have policies that support this kind of behavior. There's always unintended consequences. But I think for today's discussion, there's probably not more of a glaring example than COVID-19, as we've all dealt with this over the last year and a half, and what the lockdowns did to our country. Now, it's interesting when you listen to multiple commentators. Honestly, I really like what Ben Shapiro has to say about this, as he calls out the government for making decisions in a vacuum without considering all the consequences. And that's really what happens in the COVID-19 lockdowns. There was one mission originally, and that mission was to flatten the curve. But very quickly it became, no, it's not flatten the curve because we've done that, but we still need the lockdowns. We're going to eradicate the COVID-19 disease itself. And there is no greater mission for our country than to do so. Now, I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm saying that is the mentality that our government took upon. Yet what were 
the unintended consequences of all of these lockdowns? Well, I'm so glad that you asked. There was a white paper written by the Center for the Study of the Administrative State at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University, and it's titled The Unintended Health Consequences of the Lockdown. And as we look down to page three, I want to read this. Rather than invoking Newton's third law, for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction, the principle for unintended consequences should be called the law of whack-a-mole. Now, I thought that was great, because here I'm actually titling our podcast today, our discussion today, a whack-a-mole, and here someone else is having the same idea. And I'm not going to discuss the health benefits of COVID, because that's really not the point. What we're talking about is unintended consequences. So let's just run through a few of these. 45% of adults in families who had reduced or lost their income because of the lockdowns avoided going in for medical care. What that means is nearly half the people who lost their jobs because of lockdown stopped getting preventative treatment or going in to get health care services when there was possibly something wrong. And a third of those who did not lose their job or their income also did not go in for medical care. This paper cites a survey by Northeastern, Harvard, Rutgers, and Northwestern universities and found that almost 40% of Americans ages 18 to 24 had suicidal thoughts last October, up from an estimated 3.5% of adults before the pandemic in 2013 and 14. The National Drug Control Policy found that there was an 11.5% year-over-year increase in opioid-related overdoses. And individual states like Kentucky have seen similar or even greater increases. Much of this increase in some cases, has been attributed to anxiety and social isolation and depression resulting directly from the COVID-19 isolation. The well-respected Lancet took a look at past quarantines and the psychological impacts, and they determined that 22% more adults were diagnosed with trauma-related mental health disorders. 60% of a group who had been locked down had high depressive symptoms, whereas only 15% who had not been locked down. One study in Toronto stated that 28.9% of people who had been locked down had some sort of post-traumatic stress and almost 32% suffered from some type of depression. I would never want to minimize the attempt to save American lives, but the question must be asked, at what cost? And because we have a disease that has almost a 99% recovery rate, I don't think you can say that we must eradicate this disease at all costs. Is it dangerous? Yes. Is it contagious? Yes, but suicide is dangerous. Overdoses are dangerous. Depression is dangerous. The cost of the health systems over the long haul to treat patients with significant mental health trauma from these lockdowns is going to be significant. And just to illustrate this, I'd like to go to 1 Corinthians 12 in the Bible, where Paul talks about the importance of the body. I'm just going to read you a few excerpts from chapter 12, verses 12 through 27. There is one body, but it has many parts. But all its many parts make up one body. It is the same with Christ. Verse 18, God has placed each part in the body just as he wanted it to be. If all the parts were the same, how could there be a body? As it is, there are many parts, but there is only one body. But God has put together all parts of the body. Verse 26, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part shares in its joy. You are the body of Christ. Each one of you has a part in it. Why do I share this? Because it is very, very clear that the Lord has made the human being, has made mankind to function best in community. We're to support one another, encourage one another. It doesn't matter if you're an extrovert or an introvert. The Lord has made us to live together in community. 
And what these lockdowns did is they actually took a God-designed plan for living and broke it apart. And by isolation, while we may, and I say may, while we may have had some advances against COVID and prevented some deaths, what other damage and harm did we cause by clearly breaking apart and destroying what the Lord has designed us to do as far as living together? I could go on and on about this, but this is what really frustrates me about policymakers is because the temptation is for them to sit in Washington, D.C. with all their experts, with their blinders on, going to solve a problem that's only one problem, and by solving it, you may create many others. And in this case, the psychological harm is going to be felt by the citizens of this country for generations to come. So when we think of the law of unintended consequences, or in this case, the whack-a-mole. I encourage you, I implore you to elect people who consider all aspects of a problem and take a holistic approach, most specifically taking in the thoughts and the input of the American people. We were designed to live in community, so let's do so. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Grid. Special thanks again to our sponsor, Mercantile Mountain. To purchase our products today, visit mercantilemountain.com. Don't forget to visit our website at kingdompatriot.us to join the movement of faith and freedom. That's kingdompatriot.us. Join today so that together we can make a difference. I'm Chris Kuhlman, and I am a Kingdom Patriot. <laughs>